And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. So this week is, is very exciting for me because we are going to talk about a group of people. You, you know, let me let me say this first. You guys know how much I love fringe topics. Uh, it, it's just it's a, always been an interest for me. And this week we are going to dive into a topic that I, I believe it, someone can probably correct me on this, but I don't think there has been a group of people on the planet in the history of humanity that have been more into the supernatural and fringe science than the Nazis in Germany, 1930s, 1940s. These guys were into all kinds of different things. I mean, it wasn't just it wasn't just fringe science. It wasn't just human experiments. It wasn't just astrology. It wasn't just the supernatural. It wasn't just the occult. These guys were into all sorts of stuff. We are going to get into that because on the program today, I have got the man who wrote arguably the most well-researched scholarly academic work on the Nazi party and their interest in the supernatural and mysticism and fringe science. And that's Eric Kurlander, who wrote the book Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. And there's just too much to get into, so I'm ready to dive right into this. So first of all, Eric, thank you so much for being on the show today. Now, before we get into this, you know, this is kind of a topic that I think uh, lends itself to, to people who uh, probably don't get all the facts 100% right, and there's a lot of speculation and assumptions, and that is not true with your work. This particular book is incredibly well-researched, but to just to lay a little bit of groundwork, tell me a little bit about your background, your area of expertise, and, and how you kind of got into this. Well, I knew I wanted to major in history in college, and I was interested in European history, and so it was kind of a toss-up between French and German. Okay. <laughs> and German history had more going on in my mind with the Third Reich and the Holocaust. And, you know, I was interested in pop culture, comic books, all the things you're interested in. I didn't imagine I'd write a book on Nazi uh, occultism or supernatural uh, right. back then. But I just I thought there, it was more of a laboratory for exploring interesting things about the 20th century. And the most interesting stuff in French history happened at the French Revolution and Napoleon. So that was kind of how I made my decision. This area of, of research is so much fun that I think the History Channel has pinned every one of their shows on something with the Nazis, World War II, uh, or some supernatural aspect of it. I mean, that's that's basically their programming Monday through Friday. Yeah. I mean, Well, first of all, none of my research until this book was on the supernatural. It was on German liberalism and the decline of German liberalism. And then a book on the liberals in the Third Reich called Living with Hitler, which got some some press. I had a you know review kind of online blog discussion in the Washington Post because it was basically how do liberals, so-called liberals, make peace with right-wing um, ideas and why do they do it? Um, it was only 
you know, 2008, 9, 10, when I was like, you know what, this would be really interesting to see why there is all this interest. Like, basically, what is what is true and what is not about these assumptions that you see in the History Channel that the Third Reich was connected to the occult, to paganism and all of that. That's where the book comes from. It was at the very end of me wanting to understand the Third Reich and the decline of liberal democracy. Um, I thought this was an element that had been under-researched by by mainstream historians, by my colleagues. Obviously, there's a whole popular historical tradition or what Nicholas Goodrick-Clark calls the crypto-historical tradition of people, you know, Matt and Morning of Magicians, Trevor Ravenscroft, Spear of Destiny. There's a whole cottage industry, um, which popped up, especially in the 60s, New Age bookstores. And and I say, you know, you've got to look to see what what is real, what is fact and what is fiction and what is somewhere in between to to weigh those arguments. So that's where the book comes from. It's not what I was trained to research and it's not what I'm researching now, but it was an interesting chapter, so to speak, in understanding German history. Now, personally, I really like the supernatural. Um, I, I like mysticism. I like this, the esoteric belief systems. You know, I did a whole episode on mysticism in the United States, and, and I've always been kind of interested in different ways of thinking. But for you specifically, what drew you to this aspect of of the Nazi culture? Was it because supernatural beliefs were so ingrained in the German culture at the time? Or did you kind of have an independent interest in the strange, unusual, and occult? No, I wasn't. I mean, other than reading Stephen King novels or comic books, I sure. wasn't interested. <laughs> right. um, Madonna studied the Kabbalah, which I thought was funny. Uh. Um, no, but when you start looking at the roots of this, and I mentioned Goodrick Clark, but Corinna Tritel, a colleague of mine who wrote a really good book on occultism in Germany from the 1890s to the 1940s. She initially wasn't even going to cover the Third Reich because it was so many people had an allergy to doing it. But she included a chapter on Nazism, and she shows that, you know, by the end of the 19th century, and this is kind of where I start, I accept this premise, uh, traditional church-going religious observance, right, Catholic, Lutheran, uh, Methodist, whatever, and this isn't, you know, just Germany, this is France, this is um, to some degree the United States, the United States is somewhat of an exception here, had declined, and on the other hand, you had more secularism, people embracing science, embracing whatever you want to call it, secular humanism. And in between, as Max Weber put it, there was this kind of, with the disenchantment of the world, a search for something else that could fill the gap. And so the 1880s, 90s, basically the decades before World War I, sees this, this huge efflorescence of what I call, and the three kind of pillars of my you know, analysis are um, esotericism or occultism, right? Border science, which is supposed to be a more organic science that that finds the things that mainstream scientists are too, you know, materialist to really look at, like parapsychology and cosmobiology and radiesthesia, and then paganism or alternative religion. So, so Germanizing Christianity, claiming that, you know, Jesus was a member of a lost Aryan tribe or hollow earth theory or the belief in a kind of or civilization of Germanic, you know, the, the, the legend of Atlantis and all these kinds of things or um, just straight paganism, right? The belief in a kind of what the, what the 
some of the Nazis called the Luciferianism. Um, all of these things are coming out of a desire for some alternate truth. You know, people are going out in the woods naked and, and neo kind of Wiccanism. Um, all the things we see in the 60s and 70s in California are going on in Germany, France, Britain in the 1890s, Alistair Crowley, right? They don't all lead to fascism, but it opens certain doors, right? Which you can't, which are harder to pass through, I would argue, if you're a traditional Catholic or a mainstream scientist like Einstein, right? It, it makes things possible intellectually and politically that it's hard to follow if you're a devout Catholic on the one hand or a working you know, biologist on the other. There are limits to how far you can go down that path. No, I think that's I, I, I think that's a good place to start, because what that does is it sets the seeds for what eventually becomes the Third Reich. You, you, what I want to do is because your book is extraordinarily dense. And because we only have a limited amount of time, I think that the best way to go through it uh, for for my audience would probably be to look at you make this great comparison to Captain America, uh, both in the book and in and, and, uh, lecture series that I saw. And I love it because it really hits the four or five points and you kind of outlined them briefly, uh, the three pillars of your book. But I think we can go into a little more detail with some of them that pervade in pop culture. So the types of things that that exist in pop culture are exaggerated elements of things that really did exist. And that's really why I thought this was so fascinating to me personally. So let's, let's outline those if we could, and, you know, and not only Captain America, but Indiana Jones, the much, much beloved Indiana Jones series is about Nazis seeking uh, uh, weapons of unlimited power so that they can, you know, take over the world. Uh, so let, let's go through that if we can, if we can lay that out. So in, in, in your book, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just going to run through them really quickly and then we'll hit them point by point. But, um, you mentioned the book, Occult Forces, Mad Scientists, Fantastical Weapons Designed to Give the Nazis Unlimited Power, A Powerful Superhuman Master Race, and a Preoccupation with Pagan Religions. And all of these uh, kind of go in Captain America. So if you could just walk me through that and let's hit these one by one. Well, not just Captain America, the whole kind of Marvel Universe yeah, plays right, on right. that. Thor and Odin and... You see it in the movies. Well, I mean, I'm not sure what you my whole point of starting with that hook is to say we're still almost 100 years later getting bombarded with ideas that the Nazis were obsessed with miracle weapons. They thought they were practicing a religion of Thor. They thought there were secret forces under the earth. What I'm trying to summarize is, is the various ways that all these elements that I research in the book are still with us in popular culture. The question is. Is there any truth to that, right? Were, were the Nazis or other Germans or other Central Europeans interested in those things and to what extent? So I don't, I, I'm not really interested in coming up with new ways of making Nazi zombie movies. It, the, the, for me, that's a phenomenon that reflects the kind of psychoanalytic way, the obsessions or pathologies of our own society. And then what I wanted to do is see where are they coming from, Right. Um, because a lot of the books that have been written on this make stuff up. They're written by themselves or crypto historians who talk to some weird Polish refugee who never actually produced any documents. For example, this Nazi bell, right? Uh, you've heard of the bell? Yeah, this was like an anti-gravity flying saucer, right? Supposedly, right? I mean, they did actually look at for, for kind of 
to create kind of energy beams and potential weapons based on um, harnessing the same kind of energies that Thor supposedly used and Himmler charged vision. So that I have documented evidence for. The Nazi bell, as I point out in the last chapter, there's no evidence they ever created one, much less one that actually harnessed anti-gravity. All there's evidence of, besides a general interest in alternative weapons, right, or miracle weapons, is that the guy who supposedly worked on it did, in fact, was kind of a amateur scientist, Victor Schauberger, did, in fact, get recruited by the SS, was put in charge of certain weapons projects. It's not quite clear what he came up with, and he did it under protest. And, you know, at the end of the war, he kind of goes back to doing his thing. There's no... So this is one of those areas where I was like, I want to know what happened. It's not, it's hundreds of things I talk about, but if, you know, in the book, I, I point out, yeah, there's all this interesting journalistic circumstantial evidence that people have tried to bring together, but there doesn't appear to be any, uh, any evidence whatsoever that they actually created it or even sought to create it. Right. Well, and I think that's what makes your book so great is that it is really an extremely well researched document of all of the supernatural history like the title is it's hitler's monsters a supernatural history of the third reich i mean that is uh that is what you do and i think that that's what makes this so important and why i like it so much is because to me i mean the fact is stranger than the fiction i mean you know when you nazi zombies obviously is i, I didn't think they were really working on that um but but in some ways they kind of were there is truth to that right like they were they were they were doing experiments that were designed to bring people back from the dead in a way you know they would put people in these experiments to freeze them and then bring them back with heat you know that was like so there's there's all these little nuggets of truth that i think you know hollywood and people kind of expounded upon and it's got brought into into you know common I don't know, common knowledge, but this is what people be believe, and I think you really dug in and found out w what the root of those things were, and that's what I think is really interesting to me. So let, let's start with the so one of the the first arguments you make in the book is that the German culture, at least at this time, was almost perfectly suited to bring in this way of thinking and have this this kind of perception and drive when it came to. Uh, the Third Reich, because I mean, I think you, you even quote one book from Calgary to Hitler, you know, the obsession with horror, expressionalism, macabre uh, and authoritarian personalities paved the way for Hitler. And what that's really saying is that there was already this kind of, you know, belief in pagan um, religions and the strength in the German people. And like you mentioned, the, the Germanization of Christianity. This was all kind of going on. So how, let's talk about the pagan religions aspect of that, you know, because this kind of brings us to, you know, Atlantis was brought into this, root races. Um, how did this kind of, where did this come from? Right. Great. Right. Yeah. Good question. So it, there's a whole bunch of interest in kind of pre-Christian civilizations, which are, some of which is scientific and archaeological, some of which is, is theological and fantastical, right, in the late 19th century. Which is why you have these occult doctrines like theosophy and anthroposophy. Theosophy also in New York and, you know, Paris, right? This idea that the real, real knowledge is of combining the wisdom of the East of, you know, Buddhism and Tibetan, um, religious practices and the idea of an or Aryan civilization and seven root races of which the Aryans were the greatest 
with modern science and Darwinism, the idea of evolution. That was Monica Blavatsky's mm-hmm. insight, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, um, what are they called now? The, the QAnon movement now, the secret, they have a secret doctrine with real evidence that, you know, gives you insights into what's actually happening, right? right. The scientists get and that the traditional religions don't get. Mm-hmm. So that's widespread. My argument is that in Austria and Germany, for various reasons, linked to their own traditions of national unification and um, different traditions of the kind of romantic period where there was more of a preoccupation with kind of race and Indo-Aryan civilization. It, it, it does two things, right? This obsession with this pre-Christian pagan Atlantean worldview. While it, it comes out in kind of popular culture in France and Britain and like comic books and science fiction, in Germany, the kind of occult groups that form start to embrace this as a socio-political doctrine. So it does two things at once. On the one hand, it frees them up to stop thinking in traditional Christian or in kind of materialist, liberal or social, I guess you call social democratic terms about the world, that there's something in between, something that combines material reality and the spiritual. And that could be innocuous. It doesn't mean you're going to become an anti-Semite or a fascist. But then in Central Europe, in the same way that these doctrines are floating around everywhere, they become racialized and spatialized. It's all about a lost Aryan empire and a lost Aryan race. Now, Blavatsky and the New York theosophists are saying the same thing, but they don't seem obsessed with it. It's just a a cool idea because this is a time where everyone's reading Darwin Mm -hmm. and, you know, practicing yoga. So the idea that there are different races that have different traits and and they evolved and there was a super race that maybe mated with aliens. That's just what middle class people bored at work start talking about doing seance. In Germany and Austria, it becomes ingrained in some of these proto fascist movements like the German order, for example, that Theodor Fritsch founds, who later joins the Nazi party before World War I. And then that, and you, you see that in my second chapter, gets appropriated by the right-wing movements in the 1920s and 30s in Germany and Austria in different ways. So instead of it being kept in the kind of, you know, in your, what, what would you call it at that time, the, the place where you would entertain right? Mm -hmm. Whatever. Our family room or living room where you'd have a seance and that's where you talk about this stuff. It becomes ingrained in kind of um, political associations and secret groups that meet at mountains and castles and talk about regenerating the German race Mm -hmm. and religion, right? It becomes politicized and it becomes um, operationalized. And that's where it starts to become dangerous. Because it's not just comic books mm-hmm. and it's not just Edgar Rice Burroughs, right? Mm-hmm. It's or H.P. who, by the way, is pretty racist. Um, you see what I'm saying? So yeah, that's yeah, yeah. everyone's obsessed with Tibet and Egypt and and mummies and secret wisdom in the 1890s. I mean, lots of middle class, you know, college educated, but not really scientific, scientifically inclined individuals, how that becomes you know, appropriated by the Germans and then exploited by the Nazis is this separate path where it becomes politicized already before World War One, and then infuses all these what we call focus groups, mm-hmm. right? Obsessed with race and space and Eastern territory and 
and getting back to some kind of pre-Christian, Germanic, Aryan, Indo- or Indo-Aryan empire. That is just not something you see in moderate to, to extreme right-wing groups in Britain and America. Well, I think what's interesting about that is it happens, I mean, it's what makes culture so different is that they react to information differently. And I think what, kind of what you're saying is that there, you know, the theosophists and, and the people who were having, you know, were coming up with these kind of new age philosophies, they would, they had a doctrine and they would say a certain set of things. And sometimes they were innocuous, sometimes they were not. But each individual person, each individual culture will then take them. And if parts of them resonate, like if that, you know, if the, the root races really resonate with people, then they'll take that to really um, almost prove their own, you know, it's confirmation bias. Then, then what they already believe is now being proven by this, this new mystic philosophy, and let's take it to the next level. And, then, and I think that what you're saying is that at the time, this is kind of what happened with different groups and got politicized. And in, in, it's kind of a fascinating, I mean, the first chapter is a really fascinating look at how this kind of started in, you know, what, what became the Third Reich really started in, in the 1890s, which is just fascinating to learn about the German culture and, and how they kind of, you know, how they kind of indoctrinated this into everything that they were, you know, doing on a colloquial level from, you know, as you mentioned, the middle class people uh, were, were, this was, this was basic middle class German beliefs, which is just really interesting. And we're going to go through, I don't mean to go through things too quickly, but I want to hit, we have limited time and I want to hit some really cool points here. What I love about that is, is as we get to the Third Reich, the, the, the science stuff really stuck out to me. This, it, it's, what was so weird and what I'm really trying to kind of What's kind of the the battle that's waging in my head is knowing how well equipped the Germans were as an army, like how great their tanks were, you know, U-boats in World War One, you know, considering they didn't really have a navy and didn't uh, colonize until the late 1800s. You know, they, they were they had actually great. They had great tacticians. They had great equipment. And that almost flies in the face of their approach, which was all of these border scientific practices. I mean, we're, you know, you know, these are things that, these are fringe science, things that look at, you know, the, the fringes of human perception, astrology, palmistry, medianism, you know, phrenology, you know, reading a skull, uh, trying to manipulate natural, supernatural forces, telepathy, world ice theory, which is another thing we'll get into. They were doing all this stuff. Every top Nazi official had an astrologer that they that was guiding their every move, and yet somehow it see it almost seems like despite every effort to really undermine the scientific side, they really kind of thrived. And that's that was the the question I was kind of struck with when I was when I was done reading this. Well, okay, so this ties into what you said earlier about the middle class Germans. You have to remember, only about a third of Germans, and there was, weren't any really free elections in Austria right at the same time, but it would, it was a similar 20, 30, 40% voted for the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So this was a lot of these ideas were widespread. Not everyone. So for example, yes, yeah, some Nazis had astrologers, others thought, thought astrology was silly, but they liked world ice theory. There were just as many Germans who thought it was silly as ones who embraced it. There were a lot of highly educated urban middle-class people, intellectuals, um, socialists who, who couldn't, they didn't understand why people were supporting the Nazis in the 20s and 30s. This is what makes it so scary. And they themselves were saying exactly what we would say now. That you could imagine Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris going, how could anyone vote for this party? They're, they're literally talking about miracle energies and the mystical power of the blood and soil. 
They sound nuts. They're having ceremonies in graveyards and writing songs about dead fallen heroes who got beaten up in a street brawl. Mm. They'll never get a Bertolt Brecht, the famous playwright. So many Germans and Austrians are shocked that anyone with any education would find this mm. attractive. Mm. And many did. And that gets to your question about the contradictions, because many mainstream scientists, even right wing conservative nationalists who kind of liked what the Nazis had to say, didn't really think they believed some of this stuff. So when they in the mid and late 30s are being forced to peer review articles by you know, Nazi world ice theorists, they're arguing with Himmler like this is embarrassing. We have one of the greatest scientific traditions in the world. Why are you supporting this? And Himmler's like, well, it's interesting, right? You know, it's possible this. Why are you so close minded? Why are all you academics so materialist? Maybe there are spiritual energies and they're shocked. They thought the Nazis were just playing to the crowd. Right. And. And so what you have are two cultures in Germany, which I would argue have in Western countries. You have this kind of empirical, scientific, I don't know what you want to call it, liberal culture. And then you have this kind of, we could call it alt-right, quasi-mystical culture, which says, why do we have to follow these rules of science and political proceduralism and individualism to get to the truth? Maybe there's another truth out there. Mm -hmm. And so what's during World War II, this existential struggle is you have all these great scientists like Heisenberg and others working with the best technologies to try to come up with stuff, much of which is being demanded because the Nazi leaders are not scientists, many of them, right? Hitler, Himmler, they don't have any background in mainstream science. Why do they love rockets? As I, mm -hmm. you know, hypothesis. Because they love science fiction. Right, right. Why? Look, you think about America or Western Europe today. Think about the people who are the most obsessed with NASA and space travel and how we have to put all the money into it. It's not scientists and highly educated urban intellectuals. Of course, they understand that space is interesting and we can learn things. It's the same people who don't believe in evolution, who want to go watch rocket ships because it's cool and it's something tangible and they see it in comic books, and it's somehow compatible with having supernatural view of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So that contradiction is not so much of a contradiction. We see it already in the 1890s, this mix of science and the supernatural. And the mainstream scientists in Germany were frustrated. Now, of course, there were some of them who bought into some of these things, but most of them just wanted grant money. I mean, that's a carrot at the end of a stick for people here in the United States now. You know, I mean, people people look at I mean, I, I know I work with with scientists who who study things that they may not be that interested in, but you can get grant money for it. You know, so it does not surprise me at all. I mean, and what's interesting about that, you mentioned the grant money. What another thing I thought that was fascinating about that is that they had a think tank. And I'm going to get this name wrong. It's the Anna Anenerbi. Yeah, the Institute for Ancestral Research. That's a great example. Yeah, like this is what I love about this is it's 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 headed by Himmler, who was really into a lot of these border scientific things. But they looked at geomancy. You know, you mentioned electricity being inherited from the North Norse gods. You know, they they were doing. You know, they wanted to bring. I think in the book you mentioned they wanted to bring back primitive animals. They had a runes division. So they were like looking at old hieroglyphics and old symbology. And uh, I mean, these guys were. I mean, this was real border science that was states sponsored i mean this was this was incredible to me but think who set it up 
it wasn't any it wasn't Heisenberg who set it up. It was Himmler right, right. who was angry. And I had quote one of his gets one of these great quotes where he's like, I don't know why Max Planck doesn't want to work with my scientists to find the, the true nature of world ice theory. No, Max Planck's obviously a famous physicist. Right, yeah, yeah. And you know, that, you know these these uh, academic bigwigs in their ivory towers who you know think they have all the knowledge. It's it's kind of ironic because it's it's very similar to the what I would call petty bourgeois distrust of main, mainstream science we have in the West today. You know, people like how do they know that for sure? Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't care. Ninety-seven point two percent of you know environmental scientists and biologists say that these things are happening. There are 2% who say there's a problem with one of the numbers and they must be right. That's how world ice theory works. <laughs> right, or, or, you know, a little, I don't want to say crazy, but a little outside of mainstream science. They couldn't get jobs. He hired them. They'd write these scientifically sounding articles in popular periodicals that the Nazis controlled. Thousands of people would read it and go, oh, this is interesting. And then mainstream scientists like astronomers in Berlin who are sometimes members of the Nazi party are writing in and saying, why are you publishing this? We need to train people for the army and how to be pilots and engineers. And you're telling them that this is a plausible way of explaining the universe. So it's not so simple as everyone in Germany and Austria believed it, but enough believe this stuff mm -hmm. to bring the Nazis into power and help facilitate some of their ideas about race and space. And that's what I think, is most frightening is you just need a third or 40% of the population to embrace some of these ideas and ways of thinking about the world. Even if you're not obsessed, let's say with Arianism anymore, just the idea that there are secret enemies and alternative ways of looking at the world and liberal democracy doesn't really work. That if you get enough people believing that and they can use these kinds of circular arguments to square the circle, right? Mm -hmm. About reality. Any any modern industrialized society that's putatively democratic can have problems, right? Mm -hmm. And and Germany is the the as I said earlier, it's the best laboratory for this because they were so advanced in terms of science and education. They had a republican constitution like we did, and yet look what happened. Mm -hmm. a, a critic of people bought into this stuff uh, just enough. I'm not saying it's the only thing, by the way. Right? Yeah, yeah. World War One, massive turning point, right? If if you don't get World War One and defeat in World War One, I, I don't think there's enough people who are desperate enough for this these this kind of thinking to make as much progress as it did. It alone supernatural thinking alone wasn't gonna get the Nazis into power, but it's one of the things that helped them. I mean what's crazy about what you just said is this is at a time when, you know, if you are a fringe scientist and you do write one of these papers that people read, getting it out to the masses is actually relatively difficult, especially in comparison to today. I mean, now, you know, kind of what you're saying is, is very reminiscent of what's going on now is you have something will happen, you know, pandemic, let's say, and you've got fringe scientists who have an idea about it or what, you know, whether it's existence or not, it's severity or not. But instead of writing a fringe paper that they have to get out to the masses, you make a YouTube video. And now all of a sudden you can get that out to millions of people in a short period of time. And it's that seeding of even disinformation or misinformation, whatever the – I mean, I guess those two words, really the difference is the, the intention behind it. But I, that's what was so interesting to me is you know, at this time in the 1930s in Germany, it was a little more difficult to get people on board. But it's, it's kind of scary how easy it is to get people 
into these theories now. I mean, look, feeble. There's there's a whole flat Earth society. You know, I mean, this is this is kind of this is unthinkable. I think maybe 20 years ago. Well, they've always been. So the argument I make is every society has what I'm calling a supernatural imaginary, mm-hmm. their own kind of non-material empirical explanations for why things are the way they are that can't be proven or disproven. And it can remain kind of very disparate and privatized and people are afraid to say it at a dinner table or it can get operationalized and become a mass psychosis of sorts if the if the time is right for it, right? If there's enough of an economic crisis or a military situation and that's I mean, Germany was in, it was a perfect storm. You had all of these alternative you the whole world had been destabilized with the Industrial Revolution at which Germany was at the center, right? Mm-hmm. And it industrial modernized very rapidly. They became a country only in the eighteen seventies, right? We'd already had two wars in America, a very new country, about you know, confirming who we were before Germany even became a country. And then you get this destabilization of everything, science, religion, culture, politics. And then you lose this horrific war, millions dead, Spanish flu. The time was perfect for a group that had no qualms whatsoever about representing reality or the entire population or have, you know, observing human rights or civil rights or democracy or liberal procedures. They just wanted power to carry out their goals. Mm-hmm. And it's a perfect environment for them, right? And it wasn't the only country, by the way, that went fascist either. But, but I'm just, I'm just saying that it takes a perfect storm for these kinds of ideas to coalesce into an alternative worldview and help justify racial and spatial ideologies, right? But it's happening again, yes. And it's easier to do that with the internet than even the mass media which the Nazis were so good at. I mean, one of the things that made them very good, besides not caring about reality, is right. Um, is they were good at manipulating. Them. Yeah. Um, they were one of the parties in the Western world to use film and media and airplanes to fly from talk to talk and mass assemblies, and then just hit on these things that they knew people thought, you know, like you know, little symbolic, I, you, you look at the alt-right now and you know, there's all these symbols they use that speak to other alt-right people. Well, Nazis were brilliant at that. Little slogans, mm-hmm. swastika, zigrooms, you know, liberals and socialists are like, what are they doing? Like, this is silly. I, or I'm not, why are people so excited? Well, the people in the know saw them, they, they gave their salute or they used a slogan that meant, you know, down with the Jews. Mm-hmm. So they were brilliant in manipulating modern media appealing to this kind of supernatural, mystical kind of search for some kind of spirituality or or um, a way of, of, of squaring the circle of modernity, which was so complicated, right? Mm. Science, technology is overwhelming on the one hand. Religion doesn't help you anymore on the other. How do we explain our place in the world? Our, our empires collapsed. How do we resuscitate it? They were so good at speaking to that lower middle class to middle class demographic, mostly Protestant in Germany, because the Catholics held on to their constituents a little better and working class tended to vote socialist or or um, communist. But they were really good at getting the majority of Protestants who didn't quite feel comfortable anymore 
And that's how they did it. Yeah, you know, I, I love that point because there's so many there's so many weird takeaways, and it's hard to say this without sounding <laughs> like a wacko. But the Nazis did so many things right in a way <laughs> that turned out so horrible, horrifically, right? But like that idea of mastering modern media, they did. It's like it's like if they were masters of Twitter and Facebook now, that's what they were doing back then, and it worked beautifully. Well, and that's one of the lessons of my last book, the one before this one, but this book as well, which is you can't underestimate parties or individuals just because to anyone who's paying attention, they seem laughable or mm -hmm. scientifically plausible in what they're saying, because it, that assumes a kind of stability about Western or any basically anywhere now that's industrialized, any kind of democracy that people really, if you, if you keep repeating you know, the better arguments and providing evidence often enough that will somehow work. And what the last hundred years show is there are people who want alternatives to reality. Mm -hmm. And the only reason they're not constantly undermining democracy is parties themselves and the media themselves have enough responsibility, right, or respect for science, the Constitution, liberal democracy, not to go out of their way to undermine. It. But when a party doesn't care and the time is right, this kind of supernatural thinking, this this the appeal of border science, you know, something between real science and and kind of esotericism, occult doctrines about world history and Atlantis and ancient aliens, right? Pagan or or individualized Christianity where where Jesus isn't Jewish anymore. He's a blue eyed Aryan. All these things have great appeal for someone who's frustrated, who doesn't really buy into liberal democracy. Right. And they just don't have anywhere to go normally. So they just vote for one of the mainstream parties. The Nazis were great at capitalizing on that. And it took them years, by the mm -hmm. way. It, war wasn't enough for these right-wing fringe groups to get a lot of votes. The Nazis never got more than 4% until the Great Depression. This next crisis comes, and democracy doesn't seem to be working. And then they get 18% in 1930, then 37% in 1932. And to the credit of the German people, in November 32, they have a second election. And they actually decline. They go drop down to 33%. So they may have hit their, what I call the fascist third. I only think about 33, 35, 40% of a Western society is really prone to fascism. Mm -hmm. However, they get, but they're always there. You just need that party and that mentality and the cultural milieu you described to make it possible. Right. Right now in America, say there's 35 to 40% of the population. They wouldn't call themselves fascist. They'd get offended. But if you gave them all the tests, you know, Tator Adorno's F scale right, right, yeah. about their respect for authority, their belief towards other races, do they really want to share power and compromise with other parties? You had them answer all that truthfully, they'd come out right on the fascist side of the scale. And But normally those people will be split between both parties or they wouldn't have much of a voice. But this this is the vehicle for that. This is These are the kinds of things that appeal to that demographic then and now. No, I, I think that that's, I mean, look, I think this is really true. And these are all amazingly interesting <laughs> aspects of how the, I mean, because there's so much about the Nazis that are interesting, how they got into power. Because from an average person, they don't really understand what's going on, you know. And, and I got to tell you, I, I think, because I want to get on some of the scientific stuff before we, we run out, because there's so many things I want to hit. Um, because I, I think your book gives, at least for me, the best explanation for the Holocaust that I've ever heard. 
and it has so much to do with these philosophies, these you know these um, beliefs in in root races and superior and inferior races and and purging, uh, you know, creating straw. I mean, you know, it, it's people wonder how could anyone do that? And you've just laid out a great argument. Well, only a third of the people in Germany at that time were even voting for this party. But then once in power, when you start adding all of these belief systems, it, it kind of makes sense. Uh, and they were there. The two things I want to talk about is the eugenics movement, which I just thought was really interesting. This c comes from these root races, and they were doing all these strange experiments. This is one of the things we talked about at the top: these mad scientist ideas. But there, so there were people that were, you know, being they would take people from the concentration camps and they would, you know, freeze them and then try to revive them, where we get their, you know, reviving from the dead kind of comes from people using phosphine gas, which was a like a, a gas that they used in World War One, nerve gas, and they were doing all these crazy experiments on the and how extreme uh, the extreme limitations of the human body. What I thought I want to talk about how we how that kind of ties into the eugenics movement. I think you probably talk about world ice theory, which I know is a lot to ask. But one of the things I thought was really interesting is when they would find people in concentration camps. Uh, we were I guess this is going outside the scope here. But what I thought was really interesting is how in the concentration camps, when they would find people who were good, um, you know, radiosticians who would be able to douse really well, they actually let them go out of the concentration camps and they would give them money to like live a normal life, which I thought was really crazy. The whole concentration camp system was was just. Bananas to me. I know I'm go. I'm a lot of stuff there. So let's we'll start with that quickly. Twice, once led by the Navy. Admittedly, not everyone in the Navy believed in it, but enough officers did to set up a pendulum institute for dowsers, for radiesthesiologists to sit there with pendulums. I mean, they were no longer using the sticks, right. right? But to find you to find uh, British destroyers before they got to U-boats. And what was fascinating about that episode is some of them believed the reason the British had started to find the U-boats was because they had better dowsers. It was actually obviously radar and sonar. But that's one episode. But then in 43, um, Himmler okays, because he does believe in scientific astrology and, and occultism, a whole operation to find Mussolini where he lets out all these occultists that had been arrested and puts them in a villa, ironically, down the street from where they decided to commit the Holocaust a year earlier, and has Schellenberg, who's replaced Heydrich as head of the kind of secret service, you know, manage them to, to get them to find Mussolini. So, you know, he can tell Hitler he knows where Mussolini is and the SS can rescue him and they can prop up an Italian puppet regime. So those those are well documented. I mean, that happened mm. to get to. To the border science and the Holocaust and eugenics, I mean, we've talked about this already, but in this case study, you have eugenics movements everywhere, which do come out of Darwin and biology in a kind of vulgar way. Like you, you can see how biologists who didn't yet understand DNA and hadn't done the test showing that there's much more differentiation within any race than there is between them, right? Which, which, um, Franz Boas, an American, some, uh, ironically, a German Jewish uh, American anthropologist, he's one of the first to publish tests showing that IQ, there are no absolute differences in IQ between races. There's bigger differences within them, right? But, but at that time in the 1890s, you can kind of see how scientists thought, oh, maybe we can improve the race mm -hmm. if we breed better people with fewer diseases, okay? So that alone isn't 
fringe yet. It becomes fringe once you have better science showing that's not true. What makes it so dangerous, though, in the Third Reich, this is my argument, is unlike America and Sweden, where they do have eugenics and sterilization policies, which are horrific, but they, they're often mediated by the court or by the political system or by scientists who push back, mm-hmm. right? They say this doesn't work or it's illegal or it's unscientific. The, re- the way that the Third Reich gets around that is not just that they're fascist because Italy was fascist and didn't have the same level of eugenics, right? Mm-hmm. Spain was fascist. It's all this stuff about root races and Jews being superhuman vampires mm-hmm. and plants and that's so the only way you can square that circle and have these self-destructive programs of murdering people and experiments that really went well beyond the bounds of accepted science by the 40s, right, after people started to question some of these things, is because of the supernatural thinking. So that's my argument, that it takes both. Mm-hmm. Without Darwin, biology, um, the idea that you can use biopolitics to remake, you know, the human race, I mean, Nazism wouldn't exist as it did they clearly did embrace a lot of that but it's all this other mythical stuff about werewolves and vampires and um and border science and atlantis and tibet that helps them square that circle and justify anything they want which is harder to do in an anglo-american context you had eugenesis but they couldn't get the free hand they were getting in the Third Reich, because those countries were run by people who at some point bumped up against reason, accountability, science, empiricism. And in the Reich, the people running everything kept pushing back against those scientists. One of the things I'm – this just kind of came to me now. I did a whole episode on H.H. H. Holmes. I don't know if you know him. He was um, a serial murderer in the 1890s in the in Chicago. And he, you know, one of the things he created this, what they called the murder castle. Was that the guy that Devil in the White City, that book by Eric? Yeah, yeah, yeah. World's Fair. Yeah. So he created this basically a murder factory inside of a hotel during the World's Fair in the Chicago 1890s. What's crazy about Himmler is he almost seems like a more modern version of H.H. Holmes using all sorts of. I mean, you know, when you mentioned films, I mean, he had all of these experiments filmed, like these murdering people, the the extreme hot and cold, um, all of these experiments that, as you mentioned, went well beyond any ethical <laughs> experimentation at all. I mean, it was just flat out murdering and torturing people. And he loved, he, you know, as you mentioned in the book, he loved watching the dailies, let's say, <laughs> to use an industry term. He liked watching the film of this stuff going on, which makes me think of him. I mean, kind of in those terms. Like, At one point when the freezing experiments weren't working and even some of his own scientists, like maybe these, these don't make sense. He said, drawing on Grimm's fairy tales, the fisherman's wife, that maybe if you put human warmth, not artificial electrical warmth, so you put warm, naked women in with the men who are frozen to death, that would resuscitate them. I'm giving you an example of how 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 someone powerful enough yeah. can get scientists to do really dumb things, right? So so there, there you go. Like he literally is quoting a fairy tale he had read as an idea for maybe this is why. He also thought that boogeymen apparently were gays who had been rightly, you know, singled out in the Middle Ages and thrown into um, into the bog. Uh, it was a form of kind of weeding out homosexuality. So he had all... 
you know, supernaturalism infused his worldview. But go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, I mean, he seems like the, like one of these kind of serial killers who rose into power and was able to, you know, convince others to do his dirty work in a way that didn't land him in jail. I mean, he seems like, you know, I, I, you know, I, neither one of us are psychologists, but when I, when I would hear these things about Himmler, it made me think of H.H. H. Holmes. And you, you know, I was, I was reading that in your book. I didn't know what natural heat meant. Cause as you mentioned, they did these, these cold experiments on people. They would basically kill people with hypothermia and then they would use electric heat to try to revive them. And then they, then you said natural heat, and I wasn't sure if that meant like naked women or if it meant sex. If it meant, I, I wasn't sure. There seemed to be some, you know, like a another layer to what natural meant. I I, I believe that's what it, what was meant, but I don't think they're serial killers. I mean, obviously there are in the Nazis created a culture, especially in the concentration camps, where brutality and sadism were prized, even among inmates. The people who became capitalists were often the most yeah. brutal, least functional people in normal society, right? That's true of prisons in America. Um, I think Nazis had a lot of mainstream, normal, middle-class, technocratic people. What makes it so scary is the way those people, given the right incentives and the right culture, can facilitate and even help plan and carry out these things. Um, I don't, I don't think it helps us to write off some of the worst crimes by saying, well, you know, they, too bad Himmler, who was basically a seer. I don't think Himmler, I think Himmler was a petty bourgeois, bright, but only, you know, semi-educated guy who had a great organizational and, and technocratic kind of um, acumen who rose in a party that had all these ideas and was good at carrying out what people wanted him to carry out. And when given lots of power, he came up with some ideas which, you know, seem implausible now, but he was able to get away with them because there weren't those checks and balances. I mean, to come back to the contemporary alt-right, look at Turkey. Look at Putin. Look at our own country. Look at some of the ideas mm-hmm. that get floated right now in highest offices. Bannon, Pence talking about pedof- pedophilia. You know, Clinton people are running a pedophile thing out of a pizza parlor. I I don't know where this stuff comes from, other than this. It's always there in a kind of fringe way, and even some relatively smart people embrace it, but they're afraid to say it or they never get in the right positions. And then when they do. All of a sudden, that can become operationalized. Yeah, no, no, I think that's right. I mean, I, I was just making the comparison between the systematic. I mean, H. H. Holmes was systematic in his murders, and Himmler seemed to enjoy that same level of efficiency. Uh, and you know, I know it's not fair to write him off. I'm not a psychologist. It just there's a lot of parallels that I just thought were interesting. Um, but before before we close up here, we got to talk. I, I, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about some of these uh, miracle weapons because my favorite, you know, my favorite movie series is Indiana Jones, and you know, obviously there's 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 a lot of fun there. Uh, very few like real connections. But I, I love this. You know, you mentioned in the book that they were they had pagan inspired research excursions to mystical sites that were sponsored by the Nazis. Uh, you know, the stories of Ragnarok that, that about the, the tide, you know, turning the tide of the war, divine weapon would turn the tide of the war. And all this kind of started in 1942. You know, and then there's you know, there's all of this stuff. And you, know, you mentioned the spirit destiny is, is one of the books. And there's all these ideas of, of the Nazis looking for these Christian artifacts to give them an edge. And then there's also the scientific aspect where people are looking for miracle technology. You mentioned the bell, which is like a flying saucer shaped thing. Uh, this this to me is just really fascinating and separating fact from fiction is difficult 
Um, but let's let's try in a, in a couple minutes if we could some of the highlights of the miracle weapon to this. Almost everything you mentioned didn't happen, right? They never not a single instance I found of any Nazi believing they could find some kind of holy relic that would help them win. None of them had that kind of medieval Christian belief or pagan belief. I mean, in that sense, they were too scientific and modern. They didn't think that old religious or fantastical or occult doctrines were an insight into a reality that mainstream scientists and archaeologists mm. biologists had ignored mm. and that it was worth exploring those. Got it. So that's why him looking for electrical energies that could be harnessed or actually going to the Rhine thinking there may have been gold there at one point because it was in, you know, Wagner's version of the of the, you know, a ring cycle and then having dowsers look for it instead of mainstream geologists, you know, those kinds of things, which is bad stuff. You don't need them to actually believe in the spirit of destiny to see how if they'll go that far in the middle of a war to do things that have no – he was assigning dowsers to help find water uh, with some of the Waffen SS. If that guy is the second most powerful person in the Third Reich, if if Hitler's giving a honorary doctorate to an amateur astronomer because he believes in world ice theory, which is really implausible, right? then you can see how they can make decisions that would lead to horrific military outcomes or ethnic cleansing or race, right? So so most of the stuff in pop culture, they, they were not actual projects of the Third Reich, but they parallel things they were interested in that have a supernatural origin or background. Does that make sense? which you've seen in the book. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that that's really true. I think the fun stuff in pop culture kind of takes on these beliefs and takes them to the next level. Although you did mention in the book, br very briefly, I almost missed it two times in the book, you mentioned the Holy Grail, the, uh, the importance of it to India, and also the belief that it was maybe taken out of Germany and hidden. Um, I found that, you know, I think you said rumors that the SS removed and buried an object from Willsburg, possibly the Holy Grail. That was so quick in there. Is there anything to that or was that just um... really important? And I do this a lot. And this is good history. But if you don't, I mean, because we're in a short time, that was an example at the end of the war of how supernatural thinking was still manifesting. The idea that the Holy Grail happened to be in Germany and might be taken out. There's no evidence there is a Holy Grail. Right. What's right? Yeah. Even the Nazis weren't quite sure there was an actual thing that was a cup of Christ that was holy. What they did believe in is a cult around the Holy Grail that symbolized a kind of Luciferian neo-pagan version of Christianity, of Manichaean light and darkness, where Lucifer was a light bringer, and that they sent archaeologists like Ultoran to go investigate it as a way of recovering this Germanic religion, and also maybe with it certain aspects of German culture, history. So in that sense, they were fascinated by the Holy Grail, but in a more quasi-symbolic way, not as an actual source of power. I, I didn't find a lot of evidence that the Nazis were like, this is fascinating, go research the Holy Grail, saying, if you find it, we will win the war. Right, right. <laughs> it was, what, is, what, is, what do those stories tell us about ancient Germanic race, culture, and religion that the Jewified Catholic Church tried to wipe out. And they did believe that the Catholic Church was run by Jews who wanted to exterminate German culture and religion and maybe the Germanic race through witchcraft accusations. So, 
So that is true. Like they did believe that witchcraft was a made up thing to attack magic practicers, right? In ancient Germanic society or medieval German society. And if you kill the women who are usually the ones who practice magic, of course, then you destroy their religion and culture and they couldn't have children. Mm. So, so Himmler, May, Rosenberg all thought there was a conspiracy of the Catholic Church to destroy this or religion kind of magical Germanic culture, which was linked in their mind to the Holy Grail and the um, Albigensians and Montsegur, right? They thought it, it had to do with that kind of separatist Christian tradition. So that reality is already fascinating, interesting enough without us saying, oh, there actually is a Holy Grail the Nazis found. You see what I'm saying? I, that- I do, although I do take issue because I think Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is an amazing movie, and it does talk about there actually being a holy grail. But your point is taken, Eric. I do understand. Uh, I mean, this is this is a fascinating book. I mean, there we've. I mean, I don't even scratching the surface isn't even isn't even <laughs> it's not even close to what we've done because there's so much there's so much going on with this. I had no idea how ingrained just supernatural thinking was in almost every aspect of what the Third Reich did. Uh, this is a great book. Uh, you know, this was, I, I forgot to mention this up top, but the, the title of your book was actually up for an oddest title of the year award. Um, I happen to think it's a great title. I love it. Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. That seems like a great title that tells you exactly what's in the book. Uh, where can people find this book or find you if they want to learn more? Um, well, you can order it directly from Yale University Press, which is the uh, publisher, or Amazon, where it's widely available in paperback at a, at a pretty reasonable price. And, um, you know, I, they can find my webpage at Stetson University. Just look up Eric Kurlander if they want to contact me. I've definitely gotten a lot of, uh, you know, kind of un- unsolicited, often very interesting emails and letters since the book came out three years ago. And I you know, it's always interesting to meet different people working in different genres. So um, and I do think it's an important you know, lesson. Uh, that's why we do history and thinking about our present. So I hope I hope people can go out and get the book. Yeah, no, absolutely. no. Where do you use social media at all? Do people do you Twitter, Facebook, any of that? Uh, I don't really I, I use Facebook. I'm not you know, I'm not a huge social media person. Yeah. I mean, I have a Twitter account, but I, yeah, that I guess I'm. I'm not as sophisticated as I should be. <laughs> well, if the Nazis have taught us anything, it's sophistication in modern technology is probably, uh, at least in, in as far as social media goes, um, probably not the best. But this is, I, I love this book. This is, I mean, it's a dense historical study of the supernatural history, but man, you really, it's well-researched. I mean, this is, this is a great book. I loved it. Um, Eric, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. This was really fun. And you, you know your stuff. It was a fun conversation. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you enjoyed this show, which I hope that you did, you got to subscribe. You don't want to miss an episode. You can subscribe on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher. And now, Spotify. If you're not already subscribed to those, you can easily pop over to the website, 
fascinatingnouns.com. You can find links to subscribe to the podcast at the bottom, and you can also find links to follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And of course, if you like this episode and want to learn more, you can find a show link where you can find different types of all the different articles we talked about, videos, pictures for this episode and every other episode that we've done. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.